0: Hi, welcome to Monocular, a storytelling podcast where I offer you a one eyed look at the distant and not so distant past. It's been a long time, but here it finally is, a new episode of Monocular. The story you're about to listen to is one of those classic fish-out-of-water stories. But this isn't Eliza Doolittle trying to make it in the fancy upper-class world of Henry Higgins and his cohorts. Rather, it's the story of a young student who very strongly defines himself as a proponent of the liberal arts. Yet suddenly, he finds himself working for the quintessential kind of massive corporation, an insurance company. Yes, that liberal arts guy was obviously me, and I'm still very much that guy. I still can't quite believe that I ended up in that kind of world, even if it was only temporarily. However, I learned a lot from that experience, and it undoubtedly shaped my views of what big corporations are all about. My apologies in advance to any truly good people listening to this, who also happen to be working for a big corporation or even an insurance company. I know there are, indeed, lots of good people out there who do, including my dear friend Lese, who plays a crucial role in the first part of the story. As always, Monocular is written, performed, recorded and produced by me, Michael Elbeck, and you can get all the information you might want about the show on Monocular Pod. Dot com, including how to become a patron for just $2 a month. Monocular is a Tarotown Storyworks production, and for more information about the company, a one-stop shop for all kinds of storytelling, please visit tarotown.com. Without any further ado, here's the story. I had the title ready before I even began writing it. Corporate Sellout. Enjoy. On January 3rd, 2007, I did something that was quite out of character for me, on multiple levels even. I was 24 years old and a handful of months away from earning my bachelor's degree in aesthetics and culture from Aarhus University. I had never had a proper job as a student, although less than a month earlier, I had debuted as a largely unpaid music critic for the biggest music magazine in Denmark. I was about as liberal artsy-fartsy as you could be. And with my new title as a music critic, I had taken my first important step towards one day making a living as a writer. In Denmark, as a student, you get a bunch of money every month. And while it's not a lot, it's usually enough to sustain yourself if you keep your rent low. For instance, by sharing a small apartment with a friend. That was the main reason I hadn't taken a job. I was reaping the benefits of living in a country that pays people to get educated. So it did indeed feel out of character when I kicked off 2007 by sending off a proper job application to an insurance company, no less. The pressure to do so largely came from my friend and roommate, Leslie. We'd known each other since the beginning of high school, so for about eight years at this point. In our friend group, I was always the person with the least money to spare. Not that I came from a family with significantly less money than my friends, but because I never had a proper student job except for a while in high school where I worked as the co-webmaster updating the school website. As a student, I had spent most of my free time making music and had recorded the equivalent of about 10 albums at this point, though I never made a dime off of my music. While I was busy trying and ultimately failing to become a famous songwriter, my friends had taken on a variety of odd jobs, from working in supermarkets to driving forklifts in a furniture factory. It always bothered Lessa greatly that I didn't show more interest in taking on a traditional job, even if it was of the more menial kind. A few years prior, I had finished a dubious two-year degree in multimedia design, which had not led to a proper job. As such, I was partially unemployed for about a year, until I started studying aesthetics and culture. During this time, Lessa almost lost it. He kept pushing me to take a job, any job, such as maybe a store clerk in Fulna and our defunct Danish equivalent to Best Buy. I discussed this with my dad, who told me I shouldn't do that. He didn't express concern about my overall direction in life and seemingly trusted that I would figure things out. I'm incredibly grateful to my dad that he showed this trust in me, as I'm sure it's not something any dad would do. So, I didn't apply for the store clerk job, but I did become a substitute teacher at a few different public schools. And I spent a significant time during this strange year in front of swarms of school children, most of whom I would only see for a lesson or two. That, quite literally, is a story for another time, however. Even after I'd become a university student, Less was still frustrated with me and how I, according to him, did not contribute properly to society. In fact, he once stated that with all the money that the Danish government spent on me, including allowing me to go to university tuition-free to get a liberal arts degree, no less... I would probably never contribute enough taxes to even cover for myself. As such, in the great spreadsheet of Danish finances, my final number would be red. Or so Les acclaimed claimed at least. His own career path would see him contributing greatly to the global economy thanks to his work for various multinational oil and gas companies. While I didn't truly believe Less's claims about my value to society, he did manage to push me in this quite odd direction of applying for a job calling up people on behalf of an insurance company. I considered it one of the least likely places I'd ever end up, given my creative and academic inclinations. If I wasn't going to be a successful musician, at least I was going to be writing about music. Nevertheless, I took the process seriously and wrote a very serious job application, or at least my bullshitting efforts were pretty serious as I wrote. The thought of working for a big corporation appeals greatly to me, as I know I will step into a universe with well-established values. This means, not least, that ambitions are set wonderfully high and that a standard has been set that creates a high degree of satisfaction for both clients and employees. Jesus Christ. I sent the application past my sister, who expressed concern I might come across as overqualified. But, you know, it worked. I got the job. And soon, I officially held the title of Meeting Booker. The job was pretty straightforward. For two nights a week... Each four-hour shift with a half-hour break, I'd put on my headset and call up people who were already buying their insurance through this company. The goal was to convince them to take a face-to-face meeting, during which an insurance agent would try to, quote-unquote, optimize their current policies. In reality, though, those face-to-face meetings were an opportunity to sell people more insurance. So the very core of the job was to bullshit people into thinking they'd get a better deal, which technically could happen. But really, the goal was to set them up to buy more insurance, and probably more than they actually needed. I didn't realize this right off the bat, though, naive as I was. Instead, I believed what I was being told, that this was a service to the customers offered to keep them happy. The room I was placed in was a big open plan office where groups of four desks would be clustered together. This meant that you had at least three colleagues within earshot at all times, and often more, if the whole place was a buzzin' with enthusiastic insurance company worker bees trying to trick customers into taking meetings. My colleagues were almost all business school students, my mirror opposites, at least in terms of how I perceived myself as a proud liberal arts student. Whereas they were studying the world of business and money and profits and corporate ladders, I was studying arts and culture and all the things that create value and meaning in life beyond the scope of finances. As it turned out, I was the only liberal arts student there, which made it a little difficult on the social front. There were a few nice people there, mainly guys, but none that seemed to have the potential of becoming actual friends of mine. The girls generally seemed to fit my preconceived notions of what female business school students were like. Superficial, too much makeup, too cutesy sounding, and socially unapproachable, if you're a guy in a band t shirt. My boss was a woman in her late 30s who was generally very nice, but really not an impactful presence. It seemed as if she happily let her right hand man be the more charismatic leader. He was the office supervisor, and I'll call him Tuna. Not so much as an homage to Ed Helms, but because that's only one letter away from his actual name. Tuna was in his mid to late 20s, so only a few years older than me. He was clearly the hot guy in school, and he had the attitude to match. He got a lot of attention from my female colleagues, as well as the more sycophantic male ones. I recognized this type of guy from miles away, and smartly never wasted too much energy on trying to become his pal. Instead, I focused on the job at hand. I was a meeting booker, so book meetings I would. Sadly, the IT system that was central to everyone's job was absolutely ludicrous. Not simply because it was Windows-based, but because its interface consisted of a text-only window with a light-gray background and a blue, single space courier font. It was barely a step up from a piece of MS-DOS software. The interface would serve us up subjects, as the customers were called, revealing some very basic info. Name, address, phone number, some info on what insurance they already had, as well as a field for notes that you and your colleagues could fill out with the relevant information. This could be little tips on what to call people or what to say. Sometimes you'd want to make sure to talk to a specific half of a married couple because that half was either nicer or more knowledgeable. One of my colleagues used the equivalent of the abbreviation TTH in the notes field. Some of us were puzzled as to what that meant. My colleague thought we were stupid when we asked him and he sternly told us that it stood for talk to her, meaning the female half of the couple, Not realizing at all how TTH was probably not a helpful way to communicate the difference between him and her. Every time you called someone up, you'd click a button and the next subject would show up on your screen. It seemed completely arbitrary who the next subject would be. There was no rhyme or reason to it, and sometimes it would seem like you were presented an infinite number of subjects, while other times it would start to loop and you could request the release of more subjects. I was astonished by this system, and I still am to this day. This was 2007, not 1977. Decent graphical user interfaces were a thing by this point. Nevertheless, the technical difficulties presented by this ridiculous system were not what would ultimately determine your success in the job. That was, rather, how well you did when you actually talked to people on the phone. A lot of the people I called up were quite nice, but some people really didn't want to hear from their insurance company during what would often be dinner time, given that our shifts lasted from 5 to 9 p.m. The most annoyance I ever caused was when I called up a lady who was watching a popular cop show called An Appeal. You're calling in the middle of this? She said, as if I had called during the Queen's speech on New Year's Eve and really should know better. Of course, some people seemed to figure out the scheme right away. And simply said that if there was a way they could get better insurance, potentially for less money, couldn't we just adjust their policies without them having to take a meeting? An entirely fair point and one I would be likely to make myself if I were on the receiving end of such a call. Having essentially no comprehension of how insurance policies worked when I started the job, I managed to learn a few essential things quite quickly. Sometimes people would have additional kinds of insurance with other companies and it was crucial to know which ones we would never be able to compete with. For instance, if anyone said they were insured through the teachers' union, we might as well just hang up. Other times, it was whether or not people owned, say, two boats or a vacation house, in which case we could lump several things together and thereby become competitive after all. More than anything, though, what made the difference was your general approach to people. I kept putting myself in the shoes of the people I called up. I wondered how I could make the experience as unfrustrating as possible for them, because, after all, no one really wants to spend their evening talking to an insurance company. I listened carefully to my colleagues, especially one of my female co-workers, whom I started to view as the antithesis to myself. Her voice was cutesy, almost flirtatious, though expressing no genuine empathy towards the person she was talking to. She would always use people's names over and over, and she essentially sounded like a robot. Following a script and doing things in the way she'd been told would be the most efficient way. She did bug a decent number of meetings, so it's not that this approach was completely off. It was, however, completely off-putting to me. I would hate being talked to that way. So, I intuitively felt that I had to use an almost opposite approach. My voice was void of any cutesy, overly familiar tones, and I never used people's names. I didn't trick myself into thinking that people should actually be excited to hear from me, Instead, I empathetically acknowledged that I was probably interrupting them and that I promised it wouldn't take long. I expressed my understanding if they weren't thrilled about being called up by their insurance company or by the offer to have a face-to-face meeting with an agent. It paid off. After three months, I was told that I had booked twice as many meetings that past month as the person who had booked the second most. I honestly couldn't believe it because I had strictly taken the job for the money I'd make And since you'd get paid the same regardless of how many meetings you booked, there was technically no motivation to do exceptionally well. But I guess I liked the competitiveness of the job, and I absolutely loved beating these robotic business school types at their own dumb game. There are two main ways my ongoing success would be evident to my colleagues. First of all, each time we booked a meeting, we were to walk over to a magnetic whiteboard and stick a magnet onto the little area designated to us. Over the course of a shift, everyone could see who was in the lead. Second of all, Tuna would send out weekly emails where he would call out high performers. I got many a mention, and I took pride in it. On behalf of all liberal arts students everywhere, I had a distinct feeling that if only we wanted to, we liberal arts types could easily take over the insurance world and do much better than the people that were chiefly inhabiting it. My big revelation and the main reason I did so well was a quite simple one. We were all taught to ask people on the phone if they wanted to have a meeting with an insurance agent. And let's face it, no one really wanted that, and I totally understood that. So I tried a different approach, asking people if they might have time for such a meeting. It made all the difference. Instead of looking inward and asking themselves, do I feel the desire to have a meeting with an insurance agent and letting the answer to that question be the determining factor? I now asked people to look at their calendar and see if there was any time at all in the foreseeable future that could work well for them. This also subtly suggested that it was not so much a question of whether or not they wanted the meeting, but rather when it would be a good time for them to have it. I was proud when this approach proved consistently fruitful. I thought I would struck gold. I thought about how this could revolutionize the training manual and thereby the entire staff and thereby the entire company. Hell, I might even get a massive bonus for cracking this immensely important code. So I went to my boss and told her what I'd figured out. She smiled and told me, oh, good thinking, but then dismissed me. There was going to be absolutely no implementation of this. I was genuinely disappointed, especially knowing that she was well aware of how well I was doing. And I figured all good corporate leaders would be excited about optimizing the processes that could make them look better better and thus make more money for the shareholders or whatever the hell the end goal is in the corporate world. But she didn't seem to care. The only reward I got for doing so well is that I was upgraded from only calling up regular insurance holders to also calling up more tricky types of subjects, such as farms. If you booked a meeting with a farmer, the magnet you got to put on the whiteboard wouldn't simply be a generic round one, but rather one of a little farm animal. That, however, did not provide sufficient excitement for me. I did have a few months where I just did the job, motivated by the fact that I was quite good at it, but demotivated by the lack of opportunities to grow, as well as the lack of interesting social interactions with my colleagues. Instead of spending my half-hour break with them, I would walk around downtown Aarhus and grab dinner on my own. For a while, I frequented Burger King and had a crispy chicken sandwich every time. Three years prior, I had started my frequent travels to America and quickly developed my deep love of diners. Burger King was tragically what came closest at this point in time. Mostly, I was just trying to pass the time during my break, so I was pretty excited when I was one day approached by two young Mormon guys. Being a polite yet distinct non-believer, I always cherished the chance to talk to someone who's so religious they feel like stopping people in the street in an attempt to convince them to join their cult. It was fascinating to me, and to this day, I will happily talk to, say, a Jehovah's Witness that shows up in my front door. Sometimes for so long that my wife becomes concerned, but always only to find out that we're still engaging in a polite discussion of faith 45 minutes after they initially rang the doorbell. Back in 2007, that kind of discussion was what I was hoping to get out of these two Mormons. But alas, like me, they were in the business of booking meetings. They did not want to politely discuss religion with me right there on the shopping street in downtown Orhus. They wanted me to come to a meeting of theirs and then talk. Being all too familiar with this kind of scheme, I declined and instead pleaded with them. I'm here now. You have my full attention for the next 20 minutes. Talk to me. But alas, they refused. Nevertheless, it was one of the more memorable breaks I took from bullshitting insurance customers over the phone. My walk to work from the apartment I shared with Lassid to the office in downtown was a beautiful one through the botanical garden. One day, however, I was stopped by an undercover cop. It was well known that there would sometimes be pot dealers in the botanical garden, and apparently I looked like the kind of guy who just acquired some. As such, the cop had me down and questioned me. I didn't have any pot on me, and I thought the whole situation was quite hilarious, because not only was I not a pothead, though perhaps as a creative, songwriting, liberal arts student I should have been, I was literally on my way to work for a goddamn insurance company. I don't think I'd ever felt like such a square in my whole life. When I got to the office, I was given a hard time by Tuna for being upwards of 10 minutes late to my shift. I explained to him that I had been stopped and searched by the police, but Tuna full-on didn't believe me. I guess I can't fault him, since we're all in the bullshitting business, but I thought he was pretty lame for not taking my word for it. I was, after all, a high-performing employee, and perhaps he could treat me with a little more respect to keep on my motivation. However, Tuna wasn't exactly a champion of motivating people. His two greatest hits in this department include advising people to only use the bathroom either before their shift or during the break so we wouldn't lose so much time and we could all book some more meetings. I honestly couldn't believe he suggested that, but hey, he did. His other stroke of motivational genius was when he tried to scare us by saying that if we didn't book a certain amount of meetings, we'd risk getting overtaken by this other insurance company, as if anyone gave a shit. We could just as easily have been working for that other company if they had been the ones hiring at the arbitrary moment each of us needed an 8 hours a week student job. I kept thinking how a bag of candy would probably have been a lot more motivating. At this point, the highest price you could get would be that mentioned by Tuna in the weekly email, but that effect would wear off when you'd experienced it a few times. A bag of candy, however, would, you know, always be a bag of goddamn candy to actually enjoy. A gift card to Burger King would also have done the trick. Or 20 minutes of quality discussion with a couple of Mormons, though that may uniquely have been appealing to me. After about six months, I had grown quite frustrated with the job and everything about it. Above everything else, I was annoyed beyond belief that there were so many ways that the job, which I and dozens of other people carried out, could be optimized. I wasn't talking about scrapping that Stone Age IT system or anything radical like that. I simply wanted to pick the low-hanging fruit and fine-tune the system a tiny bit. Beyond rewriting the training manual so that employees would ask about people's calendar rather than their desire to have a meeting, I also had an idea about how to streamline the flow of subjects. During a random shift, I started to talk to my colleagues about how this could be done, and I asked my boss questions about it. This got on one of my colleagues' nerves, so much so that she berated me for asking so many questions, for wanting to change things around, and she told me that we were here to do a job, so why didn't I just do that job? Why couldn't I just do as I was told? I was baffled, not just because she effectively embarrassed me in front of everyone else in that section of the office, but also because that exact attitude was, yet again, the mirror opposite of my own. To me, it was clear that everyone would at least potentially benefit from what I was suggesting. Employees would have an easier and more satisfying time at work because they would do better with less effort. Tuna and the boss could potentially tell their superiors about how they delivered better results than the other regional offices. And maybe those people could implement changes across the corporation that would make everyone have a better time, make more money, and then truly surpass the competitors in ways that were far beyond the scope of Tuna's imagination. After all, his big idea was in stating the rule that employees shouldn't use the bathroom during work. Obviously, I have no idea what the actual effects of implementing my ideas would be, because it never happened. My last-ditch effort to remain motivated enough to stay in the job came when I suggested becoming one of the people who teach low-performing employees how to book more meetings. Fully in line with the brain-dead approach to employer motivation, the people in charge, Probably tuna, had come up with a name for the upstairs room that these low performing employees would go to. The playpen. But the Danish word is actually a lot worse, because playpen suggests something fun. Directly translated, the Danish term is crawl yard, which distinctly suggests that it's for babies. In other words, their approach to motivating low-performing employees was in vandalizing them. Good fucking grief. Nevertheless, since I was never gonna get to rewrite the training manual, Maybe I could become a teacher in the playpen and then directly teach these unfortunate co-workers my magical trick. Maybe they would then suddenly do much, much better, and the thought of helping such a turn of events along excited me. But Tuna wasn't having it. He simply said, Well, if we let you become a playpen teacher, then we will miss out on all the meetings you book, and we don't want that. This was a quintessential example of Tuna's incredible short-sightedness. But that was the final straw for me. Shortly after, on August 29th, I handed in my resignation. I immediately started a new student job at the university, where I would do office work in a new department in charge of new programs that would bridge university programs with those at the journalism school. It seemed like a better fit for me, and it was. At the same time, I kicked off my two-year master's program, still studying aesthetics and culture. I learned to enjoy making my own money, and while I didn't agree with my friend Lasset for how he went about it, I do have to thank him for getting the ball rolling. During the two years it took to get my master's degree, I ended up having as much as five jobs at once, and it was quite typical for me to answer various work emails during class, without my professors knowing, of course. My career as a music journalist had started to take off, and I went from strictly being a critic to also doing interviews with people, which was not only more fun, it also paid real money, although not a lot, but it meant that I could count it as a job. Strangely enough, one of my many jobs ended up being at the business school, which surprised even myself. But it made sense, considering it was the least business school-type job I could think of. I became the photographer for the student magazine. Through my work for the magazine, I got to meet a lot of other business school students, and these were a hell of a lot more appealing than the ones I'd gotten to know through the insurance company. Maybe because these were students who cared about journalism and storytelling and creativity, more so than just making profits and admiring the corporate ladders they were one day going to climb. All in all, my experience at the insurance company did manage to decidedly turn me off of any such giant corporations for good. In an email to my American friends, which I wrote to them at the end of the year, looking back at everything that had happened that year, I stated the following about my time at the insurance company. I learned that it was actually a pretty easy gig. The main reason for unproductivity among the employees stemming directly from stone age client database systems, piss-poor management, and a general lack of people when an ability to think just a tiny little bit outside the box. It definitely enforced my belief in the human sciences and that an ability to communicate empathetically is much, much more important than blindly following the leader's vision of more profit. Because interestingly, doing that doesn't even seem to lead to more profit. Anyways, I definitely learned that the insurance business is every bit as crappy and actually worse than I imagined to be. It's fuck-all to do with providing a good service for your clients. It's all about stripping them of their money and basically lying to them. And phrase it a little dramatically, I truly believe that one's morals are corrupted from working at such a place. That was my life lesson at 25 years old. Now, 14 years later, I still stand by that conclusion. I sold my soul to an insurance company for eight months, and I undoubtedly contributed to a whole lot of people spending more money on insurance than they had to. I can only hope that I have since then redeemed myself and that my soul has been fully reclaimed.